Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. How many men ever went to a barbecue and would let one man take off the table what's intended for nine-tenths of the people to eat? The only way you'll ever be able to feed the balance of the people is to make that man come back and bring back some of that grub he ain't got no business with. I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Is there any agency of the government, a grand jury, the FBI, any committee you can think of, to which you will give the names and all of the information about those who are part and parcel of the communist conspiracy working on our secret radar? Now, if you want to really drive them crazy, you say 12 more years. Okay, we probably should have included a trigger warning with all that, but it was Huey Long, followed by George Wallace, followed by Joe McCarthy, followed by uh, Donald Trump. A through line would be demagoguery. Uh, and in fact, uh, our guest today on the show is Larry Tai, the author of eight books, but the latest being Demagogue, the life and long shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. He's been a Neiman Fellow at Harvard, a former award-winning reporter for the Boston Globe. And he has a book, uh, his next book is going to be The Jasmine, How Duke Ellington, Satchmo Armstrong, and Count Basie Transformed America. Larry Tai, welcome to our show. Great to be on with you today, Colin. So actually, let's start with the word, the word demagogue. Uh, it has in it that Greek root referring to people, the people. Uh, what makes a demagogue a demagogue? It is somebody who is able to capture a very real fear that people are preoccupied with and offers solutions to it that generally are simplistic and not real solutions. And another word for demagogue is bully. Well, there's also, I think, a connotative sense that the demagogue is often able to bypass reason, uh, is often able to um, kind of skip over logical steps and, and kind of activate the limbic system, the more reptilian side of the brain. So all of that is true, and all of that is what makes Joe McCarthy the archetypal demagogue. He never let facts get in his way. He never let an understanding of complicated solutions um, deter him from the simplistic non-solutions that he offered, but he did very much understand what made people afraid and what would make them respond to him in the way that they did. Yeah, I want to talk about this. First of all, I just want to compliment you on the book. It's it, I, The great books of this kind are the ones that are about a subject that you think you know, and then you read the book and you think, I didn't know anything about that. <laughs> or I knew far, far less than I thought I did. And that certainly is the case with this. Um, so there's at one point, one of the many times I kind of gasped in, re in rec recognition while reading the book. There's a quote from, a, I believe, a Harvard physicist named Norman Ramsey. And at one point he says, talking about McCarthy, I think he had long ago discovered he could make better speeches if he didn't bother to be accurate. And of course, the reason I gasp is, and if you're at home listening to this, 
anything close to live. You're listening to it during the week of the uh, Republican convention to renominate uh, President Trump. Um, boy, you could have written that sentence about either guy, right? So that is true. And while I mentioned Trump um, by design only in the preface and in the epilogue, it felt to me in every page like we were reading about Donald Trump. If you just changed the date and closed your eyes, you felt like you were hearing the president rather than the senator. And that reckless disregard for fact, I think, is one of the real common threads. I mean, it really they, they both are kind of. Head and shoulders above the pack uh, in that regard. A lot of politicians, a lot of people p play fast and loose with facts. But there's a way in which from the get go, McCarthy, you know, he throws out numbers of communists that he has essentially made up. He talks about lists that later in a drunken state he may confess didn't ever exist in the first place. There, there's there's it's kind of at that level. And, and, and we see it also with the president who the Washington Post. Glenn Kessler has documented these thousands and thousands of lies and bald misstatements. So all of that is true. And if I could take you and our listeners back to the moment where McCarthy launched his crusade and where McCarthyism was born, I think it makes that case dramatically. And that was a moment in February of 1950. Now, understanding in February of 1950, we were a nation that was truly petrified. We had just watched nationalist China be transformed into red China. We had watched the atomic spies, the Rosenbergs, Ethel and Julius, be caught, be tried and be sentenced to death. And we were about to do something to our school children that nobody, unless you're of a certain age, would believe. And it was the so-called duck and cover approach. And what that meant was if there was an atomic bomb that exploded, all you had to do was put your hands over your head and duck under your desk and you would be okay. And that is how afraid we were at that moment on February 9th, 1950, when Joe McCarthy showed up in Wheeling, West Virginia. He was there to deliver the famous Lincoln Day dinner speech, which is one of the most important dates on the Republican calendar. And it's a date when in places like New York and Hartford and Boston, prominent senators show up. And in Wheeling, West Virginia, it's any senator they can get. And that year it was Joe McCarthy, this one-term senator who looked like he was on his way to a certain re-election defeat. McCarthy shows up there that night with a briefcase containing two speeches. The first one is a snoozer on national housing policy, which was a topic he actually knew something about. And had he picked that speech out of his briefcase that night, 70 years later, you and I wouldn't be here talking about him, Colin. But instead, he reached deeper into his briefcase. He pulled out a barn burner of a speech, and he waved it in his right hand. And he said, I have in my hand a list of 205 spies in our own State Department. These are people Harry Truman should have known about. These are people the president should have rooted out. And these are people who are making us unsafe. Now, in fact, what he had in his hand that night might have been his wife's grocery list. It could have been a list of recycled names from earlier investigations. But it sure as heck wasn't a list of 205 spies because in the unlikely event they existed, Joe McCarthy didn't know about him. 
but it didn't matter. Within two days, he was on page one of every newspaper in America. McCarthyism was born, and he never looked back. You know, in reading that section and reading the thing about having another speech in his pocket uh, that he didn't use, uh, I also um, thought of another parallel between these two men. I mean, I feel like with both of these guys, the, the content that they wind up sticking to is irrelevant. It's it's really what generates applause. What these are both people who are desperate for uh, public approval, desperate for approbation and for fame. Uh, they have these almost unquenchable thirsts for it, or this abyss that can never be filled in, no matter how much adulation they get. But they'll say anything. I mean, it could be shellfish allergies or color blindness or or whatever. It doesn't have to be uh, in Trump's case, building a wall and, and all the other stuff. That he's come up with it probably doesn't have to be in McCarthy's case uh, communism, except that that's what got people riled up. I I, I get that sense of him from your book uh, too. That you know, communism was just the thing that was there to be used in a certain way. Sure, it could have been any issue that happened to be the one that he knew nothing about, but that he landed on as being the issue that would most appeal to Americans. It was appropriate in this week's. Republican convention, that there is no party platform. They're essentially saying what we said in 2016 is okay, and that's enough. And all we're really going to endorse is anything that President Trump wants to do. And that was precisely the way it was with Joe McCarthy. He had no program. His only, his only thing that even approached a program was getting power and holding on to power and doing day to day, whatever happened to dawn on him at that moment. He couldn't think more than about 10 hours ahead. And that, again, is reflective of the narcissism and the short-sightedness of what we're seeing emanating from the convention now and the White House the last three and a half years. Yeah, I, I, I do feel as though, in Trump's case, his need for adulation uh, is, and he's so wholly committed to getting positive feedback about himself that he's almost rendered unable to steer any clear policy course. One day he likes China, the next day China is a desperate threat to us. He doesn't have McCarthy's ability to sort of, you know, to, to bulldog one issue, to just uh, get one issue in his jaws and seize it and shake it forever. Um, but that's one of, the, I think, one of the rare ways in which they differ. And they talk a little bit about, and I have to declare first that I am currently a columnist for Hearst Connecticut Media, but, you know, I mean, McCarthy had his Fox News in the same way that, that Fox News has shored up and made more plausible to some people uh, the rhetoric of Donald Trump. Um, McCarthy also had a, a journalistic collaborator in the form of Hearst. He had a journalistic collaborator in the form of Hearst, but the real collaborator was just about every reporter in America. He understood brilliantly how the press worked from that first speech in Wheeling. He knew that if he gave that speech in Wheeling rather than in Washington, the reporters from the Wheeling Intelligencer and from the local radio station would have no clue who to call for a same-day comment from the State Department. He knew if he gave it as a dinner speech, even if they knew who to call, they would have had no time before their deadline, which was five minutes after the speech ended. And he knew that what reporters wanted more than anything, whether they worked for Hearst and Bill Hearst was his pal 
or whether they work for any other outlet in America. Reporters wanted to be on page one. Joe McCarthy put them there more often than anybody. And he, like Donald Trump, at least at the beginning, knew how to charm as well as intimidate the press. Yeah, I mean, you and I have both done these jobs. And I think the other thing that reporters crave is access. Give me access. Uh, let me be able to tell my editor, oh, I have access to you know these people. And McCarthy and Trump, I think they've both been, as you say, early in Trump's career, smart about that. You know, I mean, now he's just declared war on the press, uh, kind of like, like McCarthy and Drew Pearson. I want to just uh, take a t- time for you to flesh out another analogy. As I was reading the book, I was thinking about one of the fights that Trump picked early in his career that or early in his rise to the presidency that seemed so incredibly unwise to me at the time. And that was his fight with John McCain. John McCain, here's this guy who's just sort of, you know, this impervious military record, this guy who really is kind of worshipped by the, both sides of the aisle, uh, a guy who, you know, even though he couldn't win a presidential election, did, I think, win the love and admiration of so much of the public. And Trump says stuff like, you know, he's not a hero because he got captured. And I mean, it just goes on and on from there. And I reading the book, I'm thinking, oh, George Marshall is... Joe McCarthy's John McCain. This is a guy that you would think, again, would be impervious to the kind of attack and slander that McCarthy directs at him. But somehow or other, well, give us a little sense of who Marshall was at that point and then what he was to McCarthy. So Marshall was a World War II bona fide hero. He was he played roles in the Truman administration as the secretary of state and Secretary of Defense, he was as bona fide a hero as we ever had. And as much as I agree with you what you said about uh, John McCain, Marshall had an even deeper track record. And he was also the great pal of the guy who was about to become our president by acclamation, Dwight Eisenhower. And McCarthy took on Marshall. He called it a conspiracy so deep and an infamy so black as we've never seen the likes of in the history of this country. He couldn't just attack the guy. He had to attack him with hyperbole that was so far over the top that it was unbelievable to just about anybody but Joe McCarthy. He did it with no evidence, and yet it stuck. Eisenhower had, during his campaign in 1952, a speech that he was about to give that would have attacked McCarthy for McCarthy's attack on Marshall. And Eisenhower's campaign aides convinced him not to give that speech. They said, we might need Wisconsin um, for getting the nomination. It turned out he definitely didn't need Wisconsin. And I think it is one of the few regrets that Dwight Eisenhower had in his whole long public career, which was not standing up to Uh, Joe McCarthy in his attacks on Marshall. And it was part of an enabling that people let this guy McCarthy get away with things that we wouldn't believe if we weren't seeing a repeat of it right (laughs) now in America. Right. You know, I mean, uh, both producer Betsy Kaplan and I thought back to uh, Trump's uh, um, declaration of candidacy where he uh, ascended, or rather descended as if from heaven to hell, apparently, uh, on that escalator, the golden escalator. And then he said things like, our country is in serious trouble. We don't have victories anymore. When did we beat Japan at anything? The U.S. has become a dumping ground for everybody else's problems. Then he talks about how they don't send the Mexico doesn't send the best people. They send the rapists 
terrorists. Uh, they send the, the criminals, the people who bring drugs. He says it's coming from more than Mexico. It's coming from all over South and Latin America. It's coming probably from the Middle East. But we don't know because we have no protection. We have no competence. We don't know what's happening. And it just seems like you know, I mean, we know that there's an umbilical cord stretching from McCarthy to Trump, and it's the name of the umbilical cord is Roy Cohn. You just sort of wonder, you know, how you much do of that sort speech. of wonder. Yeah, go ahead. You do wonder. Can I read you two quick quotes? Please make this connection in a way that the um, that I find chilling. The first is maybe the f most famous words that Donald Trump uttered in 2016. And you and everybody listening will remember these words. He said, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters. Now, those were chilling words. Those made the front page of every newspaper in America. And they have proven accurate that he could probably do that and wouldn't lose his supporters. Exactly 62 years before that, the famous pollster George Gallup said this about Joe McCarthy's supporters. And I quote, even if it were known that McCarthy had killed five innocent children, they would probably still go along with him, end quote. The idea that they have this deep-seated support, no matter how outrageous the things that they say are, no matter how patently they are able to be proven to be embellishments, if not outright lies, they both know that they can get away with this stuff. And McCarthy learned over time that a big lie is no more likely to get him in trouble than a little lie. So he started telling ever bigger whoppers. And if that playbook isn't being used today, then I'm not sure what is. You know, there's a moment in, in your book where um, uh, McCarthy is kind of deciding how to mold the staff of, of his infamous committee. Uh, and who's going to be chief counsel and stuff like that. And he, he has Roy Cohn at his disposal. I will be talking about Roy Cohn probably a bunch of times during this conversation. But he also has this rather Mephistophelian relationship with Joe Kennedy. Uh, and, and I, until this, until I read this book, I didn't quite understand the depth of the relationship between Joe McCarthy and the Kennedys, right down to even various Kennedy sisters deciding whether he's a good kisser or not. Uh, I mean, it's just, just like all over the place and he played the touch football and he played softball with them and i mean this is this was not a casual relationship and so joe kennedy has a son bobby uh and he wants to kind of get bobby launched somehow so this is kind of an interesting moment for mccarthy right he he's probably going to use both of these guys but talk about that Sure. So I think it's one of the more counterintuitive relationships in American political history. The idea that a cold warrior like Joe McCarthy and an icon to the right help launch America's iconic liberal dynasty, the Kennedys, is certainly unexpected. He did it first with Jack Kennedy in 1952. Jack Kennedy was a fairly obscure congressman who was taking on a Republican icon named Henry Cabot Lodge in a run for the Senate. And it was a year that Papa Joe Kennedy, who pulled all the political strings in that family, knew that would be an Eisenhower landslide nationally. So Papa Joe has given enough money to Joe McCarthy that when he calls him on the phone and says, I've got one request for you, stay the heck out of Massachusetts, Joe McCarthy obliged. Lodge had wanted him to come. Lodge understood that McCarthy could help 
his fellow Republican tremendously with the enormous Catholic electorate in Massachusetts. By staying out, he helped ensure that Jack Kennedy won that seat. Eisenhower won Massachusetts by nine points. Jack Kennedy won by just three points, and McCarthy could have made the difference. That's 1952. The even more iconically liberal member of that Kennedy family was Bobby Kennedy. In 1953, Bobby Kennedy was graduating from law school, smack in the middle of his class, and needed a real job. Again, he did what the Kennedys always did. He went to Papa Joe for help. Kennedy calls McCarthy and says, hire my son, Bobby. Uh, McCarthy did that. Bobby went to work for Joe McCarthy for nearly six months. He stayed loyal to him for the rest of McCarthy's life. And they developed a relationship. One of the reasons I wrote this book was because I interviewed a woman named Ethel Kennedy, Bobby's widow, and she told me something about McCarthy that I could never get out of my head. She said, Joe McCarthy might be a monster to much of America, but to Bobby and me, he was just plain good fun. Now, the idea of Joe McCarthy as good fun was not to say uh, it was unexpected, and the idea that those words were uttered by Kennedy was shocking to me. But Joe McCarthy played a role in launching Jack and then in launching Bobby, and it is extraordinary that they had this kind of a friendship, and I find it an anomaly in American politics. All right, on that anomaly, let's take a break. Larry Ty is with us for the whole show today, so we will come back with more conversation about his book, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. We are back. Larry Ty is with us. His new book is Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. So, you know, we spent the first segment kind of talking about some of the parallels between then and now. But I think we need to talk a little bit more explicitly about then. And and maybe, first of all, give us sort of a sense of the scope. Both in, I mean, this is sort of a five-year phenomenon, I think, McCarthyism. But, I mean, just give us a sense of what got taken down? How many people were damaged by this? Is there a way that we can sort of just quantify the toxicity uh, of this period? So I think we can. I had a whole chapter called The Body Count Mm -hmm. that looked at precisely that issue. And what we can say definitively is that there were nearly a dozen people, including two U.S. senators, who actually took their lives directly because of Joe McCarthy. And if I could tell you a brief story of one of them, because I think he captures the sense of just what kind of damage McCarthy did. And he was a guy named Ray Kaplan, an engineer at the Voice of America. And McCarthy was at that moment going after the Voice of America and saying that they were intentionally undermining our propaganda effort to try to reach beyond the Iron Curtain. And Ray Kaplan knew he was about to be called before McCarthy to testify. He, in a panic, went to MIT to visit the scientists that had been working with him on this project so they would back him up when he had to testify before McCarthy. They weren't there the day he went to MIT. Kaplan was in a frenzy. He walked out of MIT. A truck was crossing 
the major street in front of the University of Massachusetts Avenue, and Kaplan walked right into this truck. It was clear that it was a suicide. That's what the coroner said. And he had left behind a note, essentially telling his wife and young son that he just couldn't take the pressure of being under this kind of scrutiny when he had done nothing wrong. Now, making the link between somebody's suicide and a politician who caused it, I think is a big jump. And I wanted to make sure that I was right in making this leap, even though he had left a suicide note. So I tracked down a guy named George Jacobs, who was Kaplan's supervisor at the Voice of America, was still alive half a century later. And Jacobs said something to me that I, again, couldn't forget. He said very simply, if there had been no Joe McCarthy, we would still have Ray Kaplan. The same kind of connection was made by person after person in terms of McCarthy causing their loved ones to take their life in terms of the hundreds of careers he smashed, and maybe most destructively, in terms of the millions of people who might have been tempted to discuss their politics if their politics were left-wing or even liberal, but who felt silenced because Joe McCarthy had made it unacceptable to have certain political beliefs. And that's the kind of impact that is measurable. And that's the kind of impact that I think we're going to someday look back and say the last three and a half years of the uh, Trump administration have had as well. Well, yeah. And the Voice of America comes up again and again in your book. And, you know, we're just going through a period right now where President Trump is trying to wrest Voice of America from its kind of independent perch, put a Steve Bannon protege in charge of it. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> the past is prologue uh, in, in yet uh, another way. I think it's also just worth pausing since we're talking about this right now. There is just kind of a, a, a viciousness about this. And, and, and maybe we, we need to drag Mr. Cohn back into the story. Now, there's a way in which uh, these hearings often conducted in executive session, but then with, with details leaked out and maybe not entirely accurately. I mean, the destruction the personal destruction of people uh, was being done in a pretty ruthless and calculated way. Maybe you can amplify that a little bit. Sure. So I think the words ruthless, calculated, and vicious are a perfect introduction to who Roy Cohn was. Roy Cohn was a young, brilliant, arrogant New York lawyer that Joe McCarthy brought in to be his chief of staff. He had decided that Bobby Kennedy should be number two in his office and Roy Cohn should be the boss. Roy Cohn basically reinforced every bad instinct in Joe McCarthy's bones. We can now see from hearing transcripts, 9,000 pages of hearing transcripts of closed door hearings that McCarthy held, just what a tandem McCarthy and Cohn were. That everybody who was called before the committee was presumed to be guilty. There was no sense of any rights of the accused. There was a sense when you call, were called into a closed door session that it was a dress rehearsal for a public session. If you came out eloquent and stood up to Joe McCarthy, you weren't about to show up in public for him to be embarrassed. But if you caved, you'd be called before the cameras. And there was one more thing that we can now understand about those closed door sessions, which is in the morning when Joe McCarthy was sober, his questions were relatively sober. In the afternoon, after he had had his trademark lunch of a hamburger, a raw onion, and plenty of whiskey to wash it down, 
his fuse got very short. You didn't want to be called before Joe McCarthy in the afternoon or into the early evening because you were really toast at that point. You know, there's a way in which, well, first of all, I've always been fascinated by, and your book is so helpful in, in getting me to understand better, the way in which homosexuality and communism were constantly intertwined and conflated during this period. And it's obviously very uh, paradoxical that Roy Cohn himself was a gay man. Um, but there's a way in which communism became a kind of a placeholder for otherness, for the other, and what that other could very easily also be a homosexual, it could be an artist, could be a person who was from a more elite or educated background than Joe McCarthy, who came from humble origins uh, in, in Wisconsin, was comfortable with. I, I, there's a way in which he wasn't just going after communists. He was going after like a whole group of people who struck him as not like him in a way that was threatening. Uh, absolutely true. The list started with reds and pinkos. It went on to gays. It included Jews. It included Eastern intellectuals. Um, his favorite, one of his favorite targets was senators who had been educated at Yale University or at Harvard. He, anybody who was other in the sense of not being part of what he saw as true Americans, and true Americans were generally Midwesterners. They were people who were of Christian faith. They were people who just came from a world that his farm-bred background sort of suggested were not the salt of the earth the way he was. So one of the questions that I think lingers for m many of us, um, and I think it's it's very applicable now too. Is kind of, you know, where were the Mitt Romneys uh, <laughs> during the McCarthy era? Uh, and actually, Mitt Romney is an intra-party occasional objector to and voter against Donald Trump. But uh, at least there are extra-party uh, people who don't hesitate to criticize Donald Trump. It's, it seems that they were even scarcer uh, in the McCarthy era, and that. People from both parties were cowed by him at minimum and enabling of him at maximum. Say a, a bit about that. Sure. So his first set of enablers and the ones who gave him the money to do what he was doing, we can now see with newly released papers that it was Texas oil men. They actually called him the third senator from Texas, that he was so good at taking care of the big money oil interests of that day. Another set of enablers were his fellow senators, Democrats as well as Republicans. Democrats saw the bulldozer that McCarthy aimed against senators in the Democratic Party who stood up to them, uh, stood up to him, and they stopped doing it. Republicans enabled him in part because they had such a narrow majority and they wanted to keep it, so they didn't want to bring down one of their own. The guy who I call the enabler-in-chief was Dwight Eisenhower, who from the day he took office in 1953 had his brother Milton whispering in Dwight's ear, saying, give up a bit of your enormous popularity, take down the bully. Eisenhower said, no, I'm going to wait for McCarthy to do himself in, which may have made sense for a general trying to protect his troops, but in this case meant that lots of lives were ruined in that year and a half that Eisenhower waited. But the enabler that mattered more than anybody, then as it is now, is us. We're the ones who in Wisconsin overwhelmingly elected him twice. 
We're the ones who, by the beginning of 1954, had made Joe McCarthy into the second most popular public figure in America. Gallup told us that a full 50% of Americans thought that McCarthy was doing a great job, which made him only second to Dwight Eisenhower, the president. So um, we should talk a little bit about voices that were raised against him. And I, uh, I said to you during the break, I will, let me just sort of stipulate. There's some really interesting Connecticut stories uh, here. There's a way in which you can sort of see the bully in McCarthy uh, when he confronts uh, Prescott Bush. And Prescott Bush kind of says, you know, I don't really have much use for this guy's tactics. And then McCarthy, like a lot of bullies who's been who've been stood up to, then, you know, they want to be friends with this guy, you know, because he's not afraid of me. Um but uh, uh, the Connecticut uh, person that I want to celebrate and call out and was thrilled to find uh, present in your book is one of my heroes, Walt Kelly. Walt Kelly was drawing Pogo uh, at the time, one of the most popular comic strips in America, running in 500 papers. And, um, and he develops this character, simple Jay Malarkey, who, who is obviously Joe McCarthy. I'll let you pick up the story from there. Sure. So I think that more people ended up learning about McCarthy in Pogo's comics, in Kelly's comics, than in editorials. That the idea that 30 million people were buying Kelly's books, 500 newspapers were putting it out there to tens of millions of people. And Malarkey was such an obvious McCarthy character. He, had, he was gun-toting. He was the most vicious character to go into what Kelly called the Okefenokee Swamp. And he was vile. And I love what Kelly said when um, he was asked, he said, I got my funniest lines right out of speeches by McCarthy in the congressional record. And Kelly, who didn't often wade into that kind of politics, no comic book, uh, comic strip writer, um, was did that without some apprehension. He said, it is my obligation not only to remind us how youthful and brainless we are, but also within the same framework to hold out hope for the future. And I think he did that. His strips were wonderful, and they suggested that this was all enough of a cartoon that someday we would see through it, and someday we did. And the help of Kelly, probably more than any political figure could have done, or more than anybody who was credited with bringing down McCarthy, like the famous broadcaster Edward R. Murrow, the guy who was really the hero, as you say, was the Pogo creator, Walt Kelly. And it's interesting, uh, later in your book, we find out that, I think it's during the Army McCarthy hearings, that uh, McCarthy is sending Roy Cohn or somebody out to get the Washington Post every day, more because he want to, wants to see what's going on in Pogo, what's being done to him uh, in this comic strip than the editorials of the Washington Post. I think Exactly. That's a- he found Pogo funny, but he also realized that Pogo was a bigger threat to him than any of the wimp-like politicians who were cowed by him. So let's, uh, you know, our, our time is flying by, which is always a good sign uh, in a show, but uh, it could be a problem if I run out of time to ask you everything I want to know. Um, so I want to just explore a little bit uh, the other person who famously stood up to Kelly, and that's uh, Joseph Welch uh, in the Army McCarthy hearings. And, you know, I mean, what I've inherited the view of him that I think most people have and know the famous quotes, and although I'll have you do them just for anybody who doesn't know him, uh, but there 
there's there's a way in which he seems to be able to turn some sentiment against McCarthy, although also the case McCarthy was already in trouble by the time he ran into Joseph Welch. So I don't know, just give me your overall take on on Welch's role in this story. Sure. So a tiny bit of background. Uh, McCarthy has taken on at the end of 1953 an enemy that is too big to bully the U.S. Army, and the Army eventually shows backbone and fights back against McCarthy, and the Senate decides we've got to hold a set of hearings to figure out who's telling the truth, McCarthy or the Army. The most watched television hearings um, in American history, and McCarthy is partway through the hearings, is standing up to Joe Welch, the lawyer for the Army, and McCarthy attacks Welch's young associate, saying that this guy has communist influences. And Welch fights back with what may be the most famous words ever uttered by a lawyer. He says, okay, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, Larry, I'm going to, I'm going to let Welch do it uh, instead of you. I I love it. Here we go. I want to say, Mr. Welch, that it has been labeled long before he became a member as early as 1944. Senator, I may we not drop this? I did do, I think, no personal injury, Mr. Cole. No, sir. And if I did, I no, beg your pardon. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. Let's, 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 You've let's, done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? All right, Larry Ty, pick up the story. So the brilliant thing about those words were they seem spontaneous because McCarthy was attacking his young legal associate. In fact, Welch had those words stuffed in his back pocket, ready to take out at a moment when McCarthy went over the top. And he knew, given Joe McCarthy's history, that McCarthy would do something that made clear he had no sense of decency. That happened to be the perfect moment to use them. Welch was as brilliant an actor as he was a lawyer. But what I think really brought McCarthy down was that all of America had decided by that moment, watching this guy night after night, that he was not the champion they thought he was at the start of the hearings, that he was more like a town bully. At the beginning of the hearings, McCarthy's popularity rating was 50%. By the end of those hearings in August of 1954, he was down to 34% and the gig was up. You know, there are kind of two views of Welch on this, right? That in one of them is that, yes, he is he's this guy who does issue this clarion call, although it's more of a knockout punch to a, a fighter who's staggering around the ring already, as you're suggesting. And the other one is... You know, he, he's a little bit of an actor. The the lawyer that we're talking about, uh, Frederick Fisher, he had already actually kind of highlighted the same past associations that McCarthy was bringing up, that there's a way that some of these tears may have been sort of the crocodile tears of a guy who knows that he's landed in a knockout punch uh, and and that he's in in his his own way as proficient a dramatist as his uh his his opponent. I don't which do you have a particular view of this? I mean you you deal with this in the in the chapter. I'm wondering sort of where you come down. I come down on both sides. I come down on the side that he was definitely a brilliant dramatist and that's part of being a great courtroom lawyer, but I also think that it is 
true that uttering those words was giving voice to what America was thinking, and in giving that voice, he helped steer the thinking. And I think that he did precisely what Eisenhower wanted him to do, and that was show that Joe McCarthy was the emperor who had no clothes, and it really did spell the beginning of the end. By the end of 1954, the Senate finally developed the courage to take on their colleague. They censured him, and while he lived for another two and a half years, his political life ended with the hearings and with the censure. One of the interesting things about Larry Ty's book uh, is that, uh, and this is something I hadn't known about Welch, that um, although he sort of came across as a a fancy pants and kind of highly educated, which he was, lawyer, he actually came from humble origins rather similar to McCarthy's. And I kind of wonder whether that gave him some insight or maybe the backbone to do what he needed to do there. We're talking to Larry Ty right now. His book is Demagogue, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. We have time for one more segment. So let's Take a break and we'll come back. Now I'm the best investigator in the Senate Hall. Who cares about the evidence? I use a crystal ball. I've taught J. Edgar Hoover and his boy Scott FBI. That proof is not required when you're out to catch a spy. When I started chasing communists, I claimed 205. We are back. Uh, before we head into our final bit of conversation with Larry Tai, uh, I want to thank Kat Pastor. She's in the studio making things uh, hum and making it possible for me and Betsy Kaplan to work remotely. Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, is the producer of this episode. Um, I should say also, I had some pressing affairs that required me to tape this uh, um, episode at a different time when, from when we usually air today. Uh, so, and everybody kind of flexed, uh, and that was really helpful, and I really appreciate it. Uh, and we're going to be back tomorrow with our usual cultural roundtable, The Nose, on Friday. We're watching, uh, um, well, we're, gonna, we're sort of delving into the stock of movies you haven't seen that we haven't seen with the whole idea that people have already watched everything new that they can get their hands on. But right now we're talking to Larry Tai, the author of eight books. His latest is Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. So, you know, one of the things we haven't really had a time to talk to talk much about is the way in which... McCarthyism was also directed not at just at political figures or people in the army or people in the State Department, but also cultural figures. And you, you have the, the spectacle, particularly of these young aides with rather mediocre accomplishments, um, grilling Langston Hughes or, you know, Aaron Copeland, these, these cultural titans who also were brought in, uh, and, and, and made to, to answer for things that they essentially had never done. Maybe you can talk about the cultural component of all this. So the cultural component is critical partly because, as you suggest, it shows the ignorance of these callow aides who had really no idea that they were taking on titans. They were so enamored with their own power, power that Joe McCarthy had given them, um, that they taking on lions, um, but taking them on with no evidence of any wrongdoing was the other side of this. There was just a sense that it didn't matter who you were attacking and it didn't matter what your um, basis of attack was, that you had power and you could use it and you were, as Bobby Kennedy said, um, that guys like Roy Cohn took Joe McCarthy up the snow-covered mountain and they went down with no brakes 
and no sense that they might crash at the bottom. They were so enjoying that trip down, and that was the recklessness of the era. And that makes me wonder, what if Bobby Kennedy had been running the show instead of Roy Cohn? You know, I, I'm going to um, maybe uh, get both of us in a little bit of trouble here, but that might be fun. So, you know, reading that, I was not only thinking of our current era and our current president and all of his rhetoric, but there's also, I have to say, a little bit, for me, familiarity of some of the issues that were recently brought out, brought up in the so-called Harper's Letter on Justice and Open Debate, where we had left of center and some right of, right of center writers and intellectuals talking about, you know, how it is, in their words, all too common now to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. More troubling still, institutional leaders in a spirit of pa panic damage control are delivering hasty and disproportionate punishments instead of considering reforms. And they go on like this, talking about a climate in which really from the well-intentioned left, there is still a little bit of that scorched earth policy that is, to me, almost as distasteful as the kind of stuff that we're accustomed to uh, from the right. I'm wondering how you feel about that. Is there a sense of kind of physician examine and maybe heal thyself over on what I will now call our side? Uh, yeah, so I would say McCarthyism isn't a single party's plague. It is the idea of letting beliefs become the basis for attack, trying to censure beliefs. It's accusing recklessly. It is all the things that any part of the political spectrum can be guilty of and often is. And I think the real lesson of McCarthyism is that we've all got to watch out and all got to be open to ideas and not be out there with ready accusations and making people afraid to speak out and say what they believe. I, that I, is not to justify sexism or racism or anything else, which I know is not what you're trying to do, no. but it is just to say there's really a warning that Joe McCarthy um, gives all of us. Yeah, I always feel like the system works best when there are good people on both sides as opposed to good people on one side and perceived monsters on the other. We have to hope that there will be good people on the other side of any ideological debate uh, from us. The last thing I want to ask you about, I would ask you many more things if we had time, but, um, you know, so McCarthyism kind of runs its course more or less in, in about five years. And I wonder how you think about that. Is there some kind of natural expiration uh, date uh, on a wildfire like this. I'm, I'm thinking even also of the current moment and the Republican convention where, you know, socialism is being lashed about as this very defamatory term in a way that seems pretty familiar in the context of McCarthyism. But the reality is we've got generations now of younger voters coming into the marketplace who don't see socialism as this terribly evil or caustic word. Uh, and, and I'm wondering, I mean, do these things burn themselves out with maybe a little help from some fire fighters uh, or well yeah just comment sure so i'm an optimist and while i was writing about one of the most vile characters in american history i think my book is in the end a good news story and the good news is given the rope every demagogue in our long history in america of demagoguery has hung themselves and given the time americans have seen through the bullies that we initially bought into so that is a long-winded way of saying, yes, there is generally a, an expiration date on these things, and that expiration date comes partly from the bad actions of the demagogues going overboard 
and partly on the good insights that we finally rediscover in ourselves. So uh, I got about a minute left. I mean, McCarthy, he dies young. He dies uh, of his own alcoholism. I mean, is there any part of you that is that sees this? I mean, it's obviously a tragic story. It's a tragedy. Uh, I don't know. How are, are do you feel any sympathy for him at the end? He seems like a profoundly unhappy man. So in the end, I had a lot of sympathy for him because we got access to all of his medical records from Bethesda Naval Hospital. They show what a nightmare the last two to three years of his life were in terms of his drinking himself to death, and they paint a picture of tragedy. Um, I also think that like Ethel Kennedy, I understood by the end that Joe McCarthy could be a charismatic guy, the kind of guy you'd want to go out for a drink with. But in the end, he was even more sinister than we thought and ruined more lives than we'd ever dreamed. All right. But yeah, go out for a drink with him, but stop drinking way before he does. Uh, <laughs> Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of J Senator Joe McCarthy, uh, a very readable f book full of mesmerizing stories, uh, only a few of which we've been able to touch upon here. But thanks very much to you, for Larry Ty, for spending your time and for writing this book. Thank you for having me on, Colin. Okay. So, uh, and thanks to you all for listening. As I said, we'll be back tomorrow with the nose. Uh, and we, well, I should say, say we're watching a movie called Atlantics. So you now have time to watch that on Netflix tonight.